1: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We've been talking about the possible impeachment of Donald Trump, uh, whether it should include Mike Pence, who, according to his own testimony at a September 2nd press conference in Poland, was in on it with Donald Trump in basically trying to blackmail or extort, uh, I guess extortion would be the proper word, the uh, Mr. Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to what extent Mike Pompeo is involved in all this stuff, some background stuff on some of these members of the House who have finally come out and said, no, we want to know what's going on. This whole process is just exploding right in front of us. And the Trump administration, they're really all about lies, whether it's Ukraine or something else. In fact, Tom Lobianco is the author of a new book, Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. Before we get into some of my questions specifically about how your book characterizes Mike Pence and what you learned when you did all this research on his life, I'm curious your thoughts and also your knowledge as an observer of Pence, but also as, I'm assuming, somebody who reads the news like all the rest of us do. Pence, back on September 2nd, if my memory serves me correctly, gave a Mm -hmm. press conference in Poland, and this was... Subsequently, this was after substantially after Trump's conversation with Zelensky and Mm -hmm. Giuliani's multiple contacts with Zelensky's people and and the invocation of Bill Barr and all this other stuff. Pence gave this press conference and he mentioned that specifically that he was talking with Zelensky's people about quote corruption in Ukraine end quote and which we now know is a code word for find Mm -hmm. some dirt on Joe Biden's son Hunter i'm curious your take on all this and how up to his eyeballs you think pence is in this whole mess sure yeah i remember that you've read that transcript
2: and the white house printout of that press conference and i will say this it looks like he's more exposed than he ever was during the entire trump russia Mueller probe yeah he met with Zelensky. Now, two things to point out here. He gets two questions about this, right? The first question is Did he bring up Joe Biden at all? And he says no. So, definitive no. Second question What did you talk about? Well, we talked about corruption in Ukraine. So now we know that that's part of this entire push by Trump, Giuliani, apparently, Dilbar. Bill Barr's people say that the Justice Department say that never happened. But Pence, for the first time, looks like he could be exposed here. And, you know, of course, Trump himself said that, hey, I'll release transcripts of Pence's phone calls and and meetings gladly. So Trump
1: seems ready to put him out there as well. Well, to what extent do you think that, uh, I mean, there's been some conversations about Trump wanting to replace Pence on the ticket. We're not sure who, you know, possibly with the former UN ambassador, but what's their relationship like? And if Trump starts going down, Mm -hmm. is Pence going to, you know, throw him under the bus? Is he going to step up? I mean, what might we expect given Pence's history? You know, I think there's a great Sort of barometer for this, and I report this out in my book, Access
2: Hollywood Weekend, as, as we call it, right, October seventh, two thousand sixteen. The Washington Post reports on this these explosive tapes where Donald Trump is, you know, bragging about molesting women and Tic Tacs to get it done, and um, it's just explosive stuff. In the hours after that happened, Republican Party donors call up Pence's campaign and say, "We're ready to replace." Trump on the ticket with Mike Pence, make him the Republican nominee. Pence's people say no. And mm-hmm. here's why. Because, yeah, he could have become the nominee, but he would have gone down in flames more than likely. Mm-hmm. Also, he would have lost the support of the Trump base of voters. So I'll keep this in mind. Look, look down the road. They're thinking about running for the White House in their own right. That's the goal. So if you assume that, then everything becomes about who controls the Trump base of voters. And in order to do that, you have to be unflinchingly loyal to Donald Trump. And I just don't see Pence. I've heard these stories. We've all heard them before. There's rumors that Pence wants to push him off the cliff and stick the knife in, et cetera, et cetera, toss him under the bus. I don't see that as being practical or realistic
1: politically, at least not for what their goals are. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. You talk in your book about Donald Trump wanting Ivanka to be vetted for vice president. What? (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) right. That's right. Yeah, that happened. It was shut down fairly quickly,
2: although Trump did go to his team with a request. As I understand it, they gingerly told him that nepotism would probably be a problem in the general election. I mean, on top of everything else. So, Mm -hmm.
1: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Also, this doomsday theology thing. I've spent a lot of time in the course of my life and even worked briefly in Israel. And, mm, interesting. and one of the things that is, <laughs> I mean, you walk 10 blocks, you always run across these people. There are all these white Christian evangelicals, hardcore evangelicals, who are constantly doing pilgrimages and stuff over there. And what they will tell you, and they will tell you enthusiastically and aggressively, and they've, many of them have told me on many occasions, that their understanding of the Bible is that in order to bring Jesus back, A couple of things have to happen. The capital of Israel has to be moved to Jerusalem, and the second temple has to be rebuilt. I was in Israel just a few weeks after Alan Goodman tried to do this back in, I think it was the 80s, where he just ran into the temple mound, threw up a tent, and oh, then started shooting, killed a whole bunch of people. Wow. And he thought the tent would be the second temple and that immediately the sky would open and Jesus would come down. And, and of course he got taken away. But there's cool. this doomsday theology about a war will erupt in the Middle East. There'll mm-hmm. only be 144,000 mm-hmm. Israelis who survive, Jewish Israelis, they will all convert mm-hmm. to Christianity. And then ta-da, Jesus appears. And it's pretty toxic theology, but you know, a lot of folks in Israel are more than happy to take that money how does donald trump and mike pence fit into this yeah let me point something out and this is something
2: early in my reporting i sort of jumped down that rabbit hole because i wanted to understand sort of the foundations of the christian right some of the foundations not everything but it is a key portion of it and i wanted to see where mike pence fit into that So let's talk about his salvation experience for a second here. 1978, he goes to the Ictus Music Festival in Wilmore, Kentucky. It's right outside Lexington, and it's sort of like, uh, it's like Jesus Woodstock. And he has this experience, and in that same time, Paul Waveridge and Morton Blackwell take a drive down to Lynchburg, Virginia, around about the same time to meet with Jerry Falwell, basically create the moral majority. They link up the conservative movement with this evangelical, right? sort of Southern Baptist, more Southern Baptist-inspired evangelicalism. So I really wanted to understand, is Pence a theocrat, right? That Mm -hmm. question has been floated. We hear that very often. And let me just say that, as best I can tell, the answer is no. And there's two reasons why I come to that conclusion. Number one, his friends told me that he does not personally get into a lot of this the sort of what if if your your uh, viewers want to uh, uh, ask about this check uh, google premillennial dispensationalism and right. that's where the theological... So are, are
1: you saying point. that you think that they moved the US embassy to Jerusalem not because they were kowtowing to the theocrats in the United States but the, the evangelicals who want the end of the world to come by the way I should know goodman was actually a messianic Jew as i recall i mean there's oh, there's also a sect in Judaism that there's bumper stickers messiah now um, but But in any case, are you suggesting that they move the embassy as a sop to Netanyahu to help him out politically or for basically more secular reasons as opposed to this was their way of tossing a bone to the evangelicals? Well, I think it's a couple of things. Number one is, one, it is kowtowing politically.
2: And you see that when they move the embassy and the first person you have speak there, or not the first person, but you have the invocation given by Robert Jefferson, who's sort of the, the updated version of Pat Robertson, right. uh, Jerry Falwell, that type. And he believes in this. And he actually flicks at that, that prophecy, that belief that there will be, a you know, the doomsday at the end of the world as long as they repopulate Jerusalem with Jewish people. So, yeah, he actually talks about that at the opening of the embassy last year. Hmm. My understanding though is that Pence himself does not really buy into this and yeah, you I know, I was talking with uh someone who helps him has helped him out over the years and we had a very serious conversation. I said, you know, I asked him. I said, does Pence really buy into this—that there will be, you know, what it says in Revelation, there will be bowls of fire poured forth from the heavens, and that you know there will be a tribulation, the rapture, the tribulation, judgment day, and then you know ultimately the return of Jesus. And you know, aren't there like you know more immediate concerns about that too, creating a, a serious holy war you know, by taking sides in this split in the Middle East? Right. And this person, he said, who doesn't
1: pander yeah yeah. That, that's how they see it yeah it's amazing and I thought your reference to Pence and actually your, the story about how Pence came up with this racist ad you know against his opponent mm. in the 1990 congressional race where you know the Arab would take off his glasses and there would be another pair of glasses behind and Pence this was actually <laughs> Pence's idea and his people were like no. the media as I recall in your book it said something like the production qualities were like what would come out of the local gun store <laughs> but it worked that's right yeah
2: Dan uh Dan Carpenter, a longtime columnist out in Indianapolis, left-leaning columnist for the Indianapolis Star, trying to think how he put it, he said that, you know, it looks like an attempt at Saturday Night Live with the quality production of Don's Gun Store. Yeah, there you Um, go. go. (laughs) I I thought that was an amazing
1: story. I'm moving along here because I'm going to hit a break in a few minutes. But back years ago, it must have been six, eight years ago, maybe longer than that, probably longer than that, I debated Mike Pence at the Heritage Foundation. No, wow. no, it was at a Talkers event. It was at a talk radio convent, okay. uh, convention for, to, put on by Talkers magazine. And maybe a decade before that, I had written an op-ed uh, or I'd written an article that peripherally mentioned the Fairness Doctrine. And at that time, when I first wrote that a decade earlier, I had bought Rush Limbaugh's line that the Fairness Doctrine uh, that the end of the Fairness Doctrine is what made him mm. possible and that the Fairness Doctrine somehow mandated equality or balance, political balance in media. It's absolutely not what the Fairness Doctrine says at all. And uh, But anyhow, I was debating Mike Pence about the Fairness Doctrine mm. and saying we need to bring it back. And he pulls out this piece of paper and he reads this statement about the Fairness Doctrine, you know, making Limbaugh possible and all this kind of stuff and and how getting mm. rid of it was such a good thing. And then at the very end, he says, you wrote that. And I'm like, yeah you got me I did write that and I was misinformed back then and I have since informed myself (laughs) but he says but you wrote that and the whole room I mean you know most of the people in the room are right wing talk show hosts and they're all you know applauding Mm -hmm. Pence and I'm I'm just like he just slammed me I mean this guy does his homework he's a very canny politician he's very smart and I think that we diminish him or take him for granted or pat him on the head at considerable peril yeah,
2: look, and if that's the metric that he uses for things, I mean, does that mean that we read his websites from the 1990s where he's talking about gay conversion therapy, for instance, or, you know, not giving AIDS funding to the Ryan White AIDS... Uh, right, or, or tobacco stuff. doesn't cause cancer.
1: That was in 2000, yeah. as I recall, he wrote an op-ed that's
2: interesting. about that. Yeah, that's yeah. really fascinating he did that to you. I didn't realize that. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's it probably, the video of it probably lives over at uh, talkers.com. I'm sure it's still out there. Oh, interesting. Um, it gave me an insight into because I, I went into it relatively unprepared, just thinking, okay, I'm going to be debating another right wing politician, which I do all the time, and usually, you know, without a great deal of difficulty. And stylistically, at least, and I think, you know, in some ways, even on the details, Pence kicked my butt, and it just really surprised me. I walked away from that <laughs> thinking, boy, this guy, there's more to this guy than I thought there was. He's not just another right wing yes. but... Tom Labianco, the new book is Piety and Power: Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. Tom, thanks for dropping by. Awesome. Thank you, Tom. Good talking with you. Dennis in Pinetop, Arizona. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind?
3: Morning, Tom. Thanks hey, for taking hey, a call. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, same time you grew up in Lansing, Michigan. Uh-huh. Um, my dad's a tool and die maker union. We had vacation property at Holton Lake. We're very similar.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, it's amazing what the middle uh-huh. class used to be before Reagan came along and destroyed it. As a combat zone veteran, Agent Orange, which I
3: consider friendly fire, and ex police Officer, the President will be removed from office just prior to inauguration by the military police. He'll be charged with conspiracy with intent to commit treason. It'll be reduced to obstruction and that will take down the hierarchy with him. We will end up going green with the
1: infrastructure and union labor. Oh, from your lips to God's ears, Dennis. Are you suggesting that the UCMJ, the Unified Code of Military Justice, should apply to Donald Trump? He's never yes, served yes, in sir. the military, to the yes, best sir. of my knowledge.
3: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It will work through the IG.
1: The Inspector General of what? For the military? For yes, the Defense sir. Department? Huh? Yes, sir. Interesting. Well, I don't know enough about military structure and military law to be able to address that, but the civilian way that you address a president who is committing high crimes and misdemeanors is you impeach him. Uh, The question, the next question, particularly given that Donald Trump indirectly invoked Roy Cohn and the Rosenbergs, is if he has actually committed treason. As Peter DeFazio, Congressman Oregon, Congressman Peter DeFazio suggested in the House of Representatives on the floor of the House, if he has committed treason, should there also be criminal charges for treason brought against him? And if so, how and through what mechanism? I don't know the answer to that. It's a good question, though. We'll be right back. Is your head hurting from banging it against the wall as you hear about all this stuff going on with our president? Well, New Leaf Natural CBD oil might help. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. It's non-toxic CBD and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand I trust is New Leaf Naturals. N-U-Leaf Naturals. It's the highest quality CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, no additional additives, grown right here in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to NewLeafNaturals.com, that's nu and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to Nuleafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, NewLeafNaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com, that's n-u-leafnaturals.com, code Tom, it's spelled T-H-O-M, newleafnaturals.com. Today we're reading The Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence by Michael D'Antonio. This is from the first chapter. For decades, Pence had presented himself as a humble servant who could be entrusted with power because he was at heart... A mild-mannered midwesterner friends and foes alike said his major character trait was extreme niceness when given the opportunity pence described himself as a true hoosier son of indiana who was a christian a conservative and a republican in that order this is how he had introduced himself to the country at the republican national convention six months earlier the list contrasted with the usual pledge politicians make to put country first This is what President Obama did after the 2016 election when he said, we are not Democrats first, we are not Republicans first, we are Americans first. The vice president's self-declared identity revealed both his priorities and the source of his power. For 30 years, he had helped lead the Republican Party into a closer alliance with preachers who were turning evangelical Christianity from a religion into a political crusade that engaged in a culture war with non-believers. The aim of many was to destroy abortion rights, roll back the equality gained by gay citizens, and prepare the nation for the second coming of Christ. Pence and others used martial metaphors and considered themselves warriors of the Christian right, both besieged and called upon to fight. Quote, those who would have us ignore the battle being fought over life, marriage, and religious liberty have forgotten the lessons of history, said Pence in 2010. America's darkest moments have come when economic arguments trumped moral principles. Pence's allies in his war included hugely wealthy donors who, despite their vast wealth accumulated at a time of historic inequality, also posed as victims. As libertarians in the mold of Ayn Rand's cardboard characters, they felt inhibited in the pursuit of even greater riches by a government that imposed foolish regulations and would redistribute their wealth to the supposedly indolent poor Starting with this perspective, they denied the science behind environmental protection, demanded tax cuts for themselves, and insisted on massive reductions in programs serving anyone who wasn't rich. The victimhood claimed by both the libertarians and the Christian right permitted the construction of an alternative reality that denied their own power and masked their ambition to make politics and culture conform to an ideology that included white Christian supremacy and predatory capitalism. It also denied the progress they had made in their construction of their own political might. With his oath of office, Vice President Pence became both the free marketer's hero and the most successful Christian supremacist in American history. Most of Pence's life had been preparation for this moment, and possibly one more. His lifelong goal, set when he was a boy, was the Oval Office itself. Remarkably, he had reached this point by tying his fate to Donald J. Trump, A man whose immorality, in the form of lying, cheating, and deceiving in every aspect of his life, from his marriage to his businesses, had made him a living exemplar of everything that Christianity and conservatism abhorred. However, this record also suggested that Pence was more likely to assume the highest office in the land than most vice presidents who had come before. To put it bluntly, Trump was vulnerable to impeachment. If this occurred, Pence would see the hand of God at work in his elevation to the presidency. In the meantime, he would wait and watch. On Inauguration Day, with Pence looking on, a slightly stooped Donald Trump stepped forward when it was his turn to face the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts. Beside Trump stood his wife Melania, the former fashion model, who held two Bibles, Lincoln's and Trump's own. At the stroke of noon, the president-elect raised his right hand and placed his left on the Bibles. As he did this, Trump's family members and hundreds of political and government figures strained to see the moment. Trump and Pence were a study in contrast. At age 58, Pence appeared trim, perhaps even athletic, and could have passed for a man 10 years younger. His jacket was neatly buttoned, his hands were clasped at his waist, and his smooth face was set in a half-smile. In some, he resembled a small-town pastor, or maybe even a funeral director. Mere feet away, a stern-faced, 70-year-old Trump stood with his coat hanging open like a caftan to reveal a long, red necktie. Despite much cosmetic intervention, he looked old and tired. At the conclusion of the presidential oath, which had been voiced by 44 presidents before him, Trump said the words, So help me God, and accepted the congratulations of those closest to him with a thin-lipped, toothless grin. He then delivered a 15-minute speech replete with distortions and falsehoods that were his trademark. He declared that America was awash with crime and despair and under constant attack. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now, said Trump. It was the most remembered phrase of the address. That was some weird S-word former President George W. Bush was heard to remark as he left the inaugural stand. Weird was the mildest word that one could attach to the 45th President of the United States as he launched an administration that would be stained by scandal and corruption so broad it defied a citizen's ability to grasp. Cronyism, secrecy, and nepotism would flourish. Presidential lies, daily cataloged by the Washington Post and others, would come at the rate of more than 150 per month. From the moment of his oath, Mike Pence, the vice president, faced the historic, some would say daunting, challenge of dealing with an erratic and undisciplined commander-in-chief. The book, The Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence. Tom Harbin here with you and in the studio with me, which is like super cool, is Naomi Klein. She has a new book out on fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you, Tom. And NaomiKlein.org. You and I have talked over the years about a variety of things from capitalism to climate. And your book brings a lot of this stuff together, whether it was no logo or shock doctrine or this changes everything. Brilliant, brilliant writing that you do. What's the principal message Of on fire?
0: Well, I think the most important thing to understand about the moment we're at is that we are living a time of three fires. We've got the climate fires, whether it's in the Pacific Northwest, every summer, these seasons of smoke, we're seeing wildfires in the Arctic, Siberia, places where you're not supposed to have wildfires. As Greta Thunberg says, our house is on fire. And we've known this for a long time. Um, but that's not the only kind of fires we are facing. We also have the political fires of the of the far right that increasingly are building political power by creating this sort of in group the protected in-group and then all of these out-group others and pitting the in-group against the out-group. Give me an at the example border. of what you're talking about. Well, you know, in the United States it's obvious with Trump and the the specter of the invading army of immigrants. But, you know, he's been palling around with Modi lately and Modi does the same thing with in-group of Hindus, the out-groups of Muslims, you know, we see a similar MO with a lot of these figures and the sort of militarization of, of borders, mass incarceration of the these outgroup others, it keeps people fighting with each other and it keeps them free to plunder. I mean, Bolsonaro is doing the same thing in Brazil. There is an outright war on truth, on fact. You know, Bolsonaro just addressed the United Nations and said the Amazon wasn't on fire, actually. It's just a big misinformation campaign. I think there's a connection between these sort of the, the rise of the far right and the fact that we are in this moment where the climate crisis is no longer a future crisis. We're living it. We're in it. I think people understand that we are now in an era where more and more people are going to be on the move, looking for safety, looking to share the remaining habitable places on our planet. And I think that's why we are seeing a resurgence of ideologies that just explicitly rank human life. These people are better than those people. And if that's true, well, then it's okay to let them drown to let them die to lock them up indefinitely and we're seeing this we're seeing it in the mediterranean you know we're seeing you know we're seeing it with the australian government with their offshore migration detention camps so there is a third fire as well which is the fires of this growing climate justice movement and we just saw it burn pretty brightly on Monday with four million people around the world participating in these youth organized climate strikes, but not just young people, adults joining, different sectors joining like tech workers. And so it's kind of a race against time because we have a little bit more than a decade to cut global emissions in half if we are going to preserve, you know, anything like a a habitable planet. So, you know, that's, I guess, the message of my book, is that that third fire, the fire of our movements, has to be powerful enough to take on the fires of the far right. And I really think it's a Green New Deal that is our ticket for building that kind of broad movement, that broad coalition.
1: And, And I want to get to that in just a moment. But here in the United States, we're actually seeing climate refugees on our southern border. I mean, I'd read this stuff, but then NBC went down to Guatemala and tracked back into some of these remote parts of Guatemala that a lot of these refugees are coming from and found literally places where people were starving to death because they're in the fifth year of a drought and there's literally no food. They've been eating grass and tree barks and things. And this is the source of many of these people who are on our southern border, that Donald Trump is throwing their children's in jail, passing out billions of dollars to his buddies in the private prison industry.
0: Even as he cuts hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to Central America, much of which was going to help farmers who are dealing with drought. Right.
1: And none of this is ever talked about in the context of climate change refugees. Yeah.
0: yeah. No. And I think they're very conscious of it, though, because if you look at what the Trump administration has done with its immigration policy, one of the first things they did is take aim at TPS, temporary protected status, right? First for Haitians, then for Salvadorans. So these are millions of people who are in the United States under a program that provides status, temporary status, to people who are displaced by an ex- some sort of extreme event in their countries.
1: In other words, refugees.
0: Yes, refugees, but specifically people refugees. It lists the basis on which you can get temporary protected status. Can be war, like it, which is true for other ways of getting a refugee status, but it specifically lists natural disasters, and that's very significant because climate refugees. You know, we're talking about them, but climate refugees actually don't exist under international law. There is no such thing as a as a climate refugee under international refugee law. Um, it's, really? it's outdated because the because there, the conventions were written a, before climate. Before you can have a refugee change.
1: from an earthquake.
0: Well, you actually can't. You, okay. Refugees from wars, hum, uh, um, you know, human. you can get refugee status for, because of human rights abuses, but not because of natural disasters. But TPS was an exception. TPS, like people from Haiti in the United States, got TPS because of the earthquake in Haiti. And so they've really understood that this is a loophole, TPS is a loophole, they
1: being the, the, the Trump, Trump
0: administration, is. that allows people to get status because of natural disasters. Now, earthquakes aren't connected to climate change, but superstorms are. And we just saw with the, the, the Bahamas that people are being refused entry to the United States and Trump is calling them drug dealers in the aftermath of a Category 5 hurricane, right? right. So I think they absolutely understand that more and more people are going to be seeking haven because of the climate crisis, and this is their climate change adaptation. Their plan is, is the fortressing of the borders, and it's, it's getting more and more explicit.
1: As much as anybody I know, you're a citizen of the world. I, you, I, I'm curious your thoughts on this whole uh, impeachment roll here, the, the mm-hmm. this transcript, the whistleblowers, yeah. how the world views yeah. this, how yeah. we should be viewing this. Right.
0: I mean, well, first of all, I think it's a very good thing that finally uh, Nancy Pelosi um, has decided that enough is enough and, and and has begun impeachment proceedings. I think it could have it could have begun before. Um, I'm glad it's happening now. And I do think that even though we know that the Senate is not going to impeach him, this will hurt him despite their bravado, oh, it's going to help our re-election. It's not, I don't think it's going to help. And I think anything that keeps Trump from getting a second term is incredibly important because one of the things I, I feel like people sometimes underestimate is just what that second term would look like. You look at Modi for instance. He just got a second term. Modi's second term is not a continuation of his first term. Right? It's this like
1: unleashed. Utterly unleashed. We'll pick up that conversation in just a moment. We're talking with Naomi Klein whose new book is On Fire, The Burning Case for Green New Deal.
4: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
1: So how did your face look this morning when you looked in the mirror? Wrinkles around the eyes, crow's feet, large under-eye bags? You know, you can make them vanish instantly. And I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it, I didn't either until I tried it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. I look like just like me but younger. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends, and the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody'll know you're using it unless of course you tell them. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T H O M for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292. And mentioning the code Tom. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code Tom at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com. Let's talk about the Green New Deal for a minute, if that's mm-hmm. all right.
0: Yeah.
1: It's in the subtitle of your book. I was Listening to Alexander Ocasio Cortez talking about this this morning on NPR, and she was saying, you know, this is really an, a, a superstructure, an infrastructure. It's not the specifics are not there yet. It's really a set of goals. Right. Do you want to speak to that and how you conceptualize the Green New Deal?
0: Right. So I think that's exactly right. It is not a singular climate policy um, like cap and trade or a carbon tax. It is the plan for the next economy. in in the same way that the original New Deal, you know, from which the Green New Deal takes its name, um, was not one policy. It was the governing structure of of FDR's administration until the war. Um, There were multiple programs within it, uh, huge infrastructure programs that electrified rural America. There was Social Security. There was unemployment insurance. Um, There was the the, the breaking up of the banks. I mean, these were all New Deal policies. so I think we have to get out of the idea that the Green New Deal is just one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it, it it is it is the framework uh, for how the U.S. economy should work in the context of a carbon constrained world. Mm-hmm. So last year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the 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 scientific Body that was created by the United Nations in order to advise governments about, um, you know, the the, the the scientific consensus on climate change, what they should expect, what our what our what our carbon budget is. I stress this to say because that means they're a very conservative body. This is not like one lone scientific paper published in a journal. This is the work of. Thousands of scientists collaborating, coming to a consensus document that doesn't get released until the governments sign off on that document. So that body. And I think a lot of yeah. a lot of people don't
1: understand what the word consensus means and why that's actually in some ways working against us. Well, basically, it means yeah. one any one person can veto the entire thing.
0: Well, it's true, and it does tend to make these reports more conservative, right, than you, you would have if it, you, know, you went through a normal peer review process. Um, yeah, there are checks and balances, but there are so many more checks and balances for uh, a body like the IPCC to come, up with, c- to come out with a ap- report like they did last October about what it would take to keep warming below 1.5 de- degrees Celsius, which um, given what we're seeing with warming of 1 degree Celsius, which is where we're at right, right now, um, they're saying you know, th- that it would <laughs> it be exceedingly dangerous to allow more warming than 1.5. OK, so what they said is if we want to do this, we need to cut global emissions in half in the next 12 years. So that was a year ago. That means that now we have 11 years. And it is a- a- so 11 years from now, the wh- whole global economy needs to have halved its Greenhouse gas emissions. It is very, very, very difficult to do. Um, so the Green New Deal resolution that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey uh, um, released a few months ago begins with that deadline and says, okay, we're, we have, when there's a new government, we'll have just a decade, right, 10 years to do this. Um, the IPCC report said that this is not going to be done with a singular carbon-based policy. What they said is that it's going to require fundamental changes, transformations of every aspect of society, Okay. That's what a Green New Deal
1: is. Naomi Klein is in the studio with us talking about the Green New Deal and her new book, On Fire, and she's on book tour, Chico, and then on to New Jersey, Illinois, Texas, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Cal Wow, you're all bouncing all over. Good God. Uh, yeah. So we were just talking about the Green New Deal, and you were basically summarizing it as this is the structure within which the United States can start to meet the UN goals of within 11 years cutting worldwide carbon emissions in half. Right, right?
0: exactly. So, So the first thing that this plan needs to do is get to zero emissions as quickly as possible because even though the whole world has 12 years to cut it in half, Countries like the United States that have been emitting at the highest level for longest uh, actually have to do it faster. So it's a it's a big lift, but. The, the philosophy of this type of approach is, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said it very well, um, it's a war on poverty at the same time, right? It recognizes that we don't just live at a time where we have a carbon crisis. We also have an economic inequality crisis. We have a racial injustice crisis. We have a crisis of gender exclusion and gender violence. We've got all manner of crises, and we are not going to get anywhere by trying to pit them against each other and saying, my crisis is bigger than your crisis. What a Green New Deal is saying is if we do have to change everything about how we live in cities, about how we move ourselves around, what transportation we use, you know, if we have to change how we get our energy, why wouldn't we seize this opportunity where we're changing things anyway to very deliberately uh, battle these systemic crises of various forms of inequality in our societies?
1: Reasonable question, and it seems that the answer is because there's a bunch of billionaires out there who are making a hell of a lot of money on fossil fuels, and they don't want this to happen.
0: Right, and then I think that that's precisely why we need this intersectional, holistic vision that is going to offer a lot to those people... In the United States who have the rawest deal right now, who have the weakest public services that aren't served by public transit, that are living in crumbling public housing, who have lead in their water, um, who are being sacrificed already, because this is the fight of our lives. Fossil fuel companies are going and the banks that fund them will continue to fight like hell to protect a business model that is at war with life on Earth. They will fight whatever climate policies we put forward as they have, right? Um, So we need to build an army. We need to build a coalition that will fight for this alternative, not just because it's better than climate apocalypse, but because it's better than what they have right now. You know, I hear this criticism from, you know, friends in the climate movement who are like, why are you making this harder? You know, why are you adding all this justice stuff? You're fighting climate change is hard enough. Why are you making about racial justice and, and, and fixing cap, the cap you know, fighting capitalism and fixing the economy? And my argument is this is how we win, because we don't win by having a sort of comfortable middle class white Climate movement, which we've had for too long, we win by by merging all of these vibrant movements, uh, whether it's the immigrant rights movement, the Black Lives Matter, um, so many people who are fighting for basic basic rights in this country. If they're able to see a better future for themselves in a justice-based transition off of fossil fuels, then they'll fight for it. And they'll fight hard. Because when people are fighting for homes, jobs, you know, healthy air and water for their kids, they fight really, really hard.
1: Are you seeing an intersection between this and your book, Shock Doctrine?
0: You know, Tom, I feel like everything I've done since I wrote Shock Doctrine, it came out in 2007, has been an attempt to prevent the shock doctrine from repeating itself, right? This strategy that I described where in times of crisis, in times of shock, what we see again and again is wealthy interests descending and using people's fear and dislocation to push through policies that create more inequality, more exclusion, more violence. I started writing about climate change after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans because I saw what our system our current system produces, which is not just more climate change, um, it's more inequality, more racial injustice, more privatization um you know in New Orleans, the schools were privatized, the hospitals were closed down, the public housing was bulldozed. that is what our system that is how our system responds to climate change now, right just with more with more barbarism with more brutality so I see this as the anti-shock doctrine. I see this as this is the people's plan for how we're going to actually get at the root causes for why we're getting all these shocks in the first place. Wow.
1: Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a big lift. And
0: oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No one's saying it's easy.
1: There you go. <laughs> NaomiKlein.org is the website if you want more information. The book is On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. On the Roadshow goes. Naomi, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you so it's much. It's great talking you. You know, we spend a lot of time in our chairs, office chairs, home chairs, but particularly office chairs. And uh, it's, it's important that they be comfortable. The X chair is extraordinary. It's one of the best chairs out there. You're gonna love it. And thanks to X chair's 30 day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. You don't have to take my word for it. You can check it out for yourself. Once you feel the X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support, their DVL, you'll understand exactly why I love my X chair so much. Take advantage of the X-Chair's new financing option and increase your productivity with the right model for you. The X-Basic or the X-1 through X-4. X-Chair can fit both your body and your budget. And the X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now, that's X-Chair-T-H-O-M, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code X-Wheels and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair xchairtom.com. Dr. Seth Moran has been looking into the possibility of volcanic eruptions in the Pacific Northwest, among other things. He's a scientist in charge at the Cascades Volcano Observatory, part of the U.S. Geological Survey. GUSGS.gov is the website. Dr. Moran, I hope I'm saying, pronouncing your last name correctly. Welcome to the program. I mean, thank you. You're talking about a volcano in my backyard, specifically Mount Hood. You say it's silent now, it won't stay that way. Why is this a concern and why do we not know more about it that we should know?
5: We know enough about Mount Hood to understand what it's done in the last couple hundred thousand years. We know that it most recently erupted in uh, 1781 and that that was about a dozen year long eruption. And before that, it was about 1,500 years ago. Before that, it was maybe almost 10,000 years. So it's been sort of spotty in terms of how frequently it's erupted. That's one of the concerns is that we don't necessarily know, you know, is it going to erupt in a decade or 100 years or another couple thousand years. And we have to treat it as if it could wake up tomorrow. There are signs that it is still, you know, an alive system in the sense that there are earthquake swarms that happen there fairly routinely. Uh, There's some volcanic gases that come out of the vent that fed the 1781 eruption, and uh, that's one of the few volcanoes in the Cascades that still emits volcanic gases. So there are definitely signs that we should be expecting it to erupt. Again, the $60 million question is when.
1: Yeah, and uh, maybe a, a multi-billion dollar question, since this thing is visible from downtown Portland. I mean, it's, it's, it's just right up the road from us. If this volcano melts, I mean, there are, correct me if I'm wrong, there are glaciers on Mount Hood. I, wouldn't that melt an enormous amount of ice, and couldn't that flood the Columbia River and take out Portland and other places?
5: The first couple things, for sure. Um, Portland's a fair distance away. If there was a full-on eruption, it would certainly disrupt the greater Portland area to varying degrees. Uh, the, the places that are of most concern, obviously, are the ones that are close. Mm-hmm. And Mount Hood is, is relatively unique in the Cascades in that it has uh, year round residents that live in what we would consider to be the sort of the near field, places where things could happen fairly fast. And it was, wouldn't take a very large eruption to have a fairly large impact on the ski areas, government camp, the highways that go past their Highway 26, Highway 35. Right. Certainly, back in, in 1781, um, there were there were uh, mudflows, what we call lahars, that were produced by eruptions that melted snow and ice, and uh, and water flowed down the sandy and certainly reached into the Columbia, and uh, and actually, the, the leftover sediment from that has formed the Sandy River Delta that goes out into the Columbia.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I think one of the larger issues here is that, you know this isn't just a local story context my understanding and from reading articles about this you and I have not discussed it and please correct me if I'm wrong or or fill me in on this. My understanding is that many of these uh, volcanoes around the country in Hawaii, the potential volcanic activity around uh, Yellowstone, some of these other volcanoes are actually fairly well monitored. They've got all kinds of stations around them. They're testing for gases, they're testing for activity, but that Mount Hood and a number of other potential volcanoes in the United States are not being well monitored because we have done such a good job of protecting the forests around them, these wilderness areas, that we can't, quote, build a building, which might even just be a little 10-foot square, 20-foot high monitoring station of some kind on the side of a volcano. Do I have that right?
5: It's certainly a complicated issue. And for sure, there are volcanoes like Mount St. Helens, which are very well monitored. And Mount St. Helens has had two eruptions in the last 40 years, and so it stands to reason that it would be quite well monitored. Um, it's also true in the Cascades that a lot of the other volcanoes that we think have the potential to erupt again um, are in places that have land use restrictions. There's a number that are in national parks, like Mount Rainier and Crater Lake, and there's others that uh, have are uh, at least impartial or in total wilderness, and Mount Hood is one of those and Glacier Peak is another. Um, the, the land use restrictions are, are, you know, are real and we take them seriously, and uh, our proposals to install instruments are what we feel are kind of the bare minimum for us to be able to, 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 to do the job and make sure that you know, we can uh, help protect people. There's other reasons why uh, some volcanoes are not as well monitored as others, and, and one of them has to do with they're cr- incredibly remote. And there's a volcano up in Washington uh, called Glacier Peak. That's in the middle of the Glacier Peak wilderness, and there's no roads out there, and uh, there's no infrastructure like, you know, um, antenna towers and things like that that we can hang uh, our radio antennas on. And so, just the whole question of if we were to put a station out there, getting the data out, um, there's some infrastructure that development that has to happen. Um, and so, it's it's. Uh, taken us longer to figure out how to work in places where the uh, volcanoes are so remote, the logistics are hard, and, and frankly, also the winters are really rough. And yeah. uh, winters um, can be pretty brutal on instruments. And one of the things that we've learned over the course of working at St. Helens in part is, is how to build things so that they will last through the winter.
1: Right. Now we have, again, correct me if I'm wrong on this, from Alaska all the way down to California, there's 161 active volcanoes. Seven of the 10 most dangerous American volcanoes are in the Cascade Range, and six of those are not adequately monitored. Do I have that right?
5: Around there, yeah, and, you know, by adequate, what we mean is something like on the order of a dozen to 20 or so seismometers and GPS instruments, the seismometers there for us to record really small earthquakes, and the GPS receivers are there to tell us if the ground is deforming, which uh, would happen if magma starts moving underground. And oftentimes, when volcanoes wake up, uh, the initial warning signs are pretty can be subtle. So the earthquakes can be small, the ground deformation can be can be also quite small. And so that's the rationale for having uh, that many instruments, 12, 12 to 20. And, and there's not that many volcanoes that have that level. That being said, um, a number of the volcanoes have what we consider to be a basic level. Um, so Mount Rainier is in that category, although it's actually getting close to being one uh, Where we want it to be. Um, Mount Hood is also in that category. It's got eight seismometers right now, and and that's not bad. Uh, The problem there really is that it only has three GBS instruments, and that number needs to be greater if we're going to be able to detect deformation on a small scale.
1: Right. And other countries that have this problem, Japan, Chile, Iceland, are they doing a good and adequate job of monitoring their volcanoes? Yeah, different
5: countries are doing things in some cases better than we are japan is one of the the gold standards out there and you know part of the reason perhaps is that their volcanoes erupt more frequently there have been people that have been killed more recently by volcanoes and so the hazard is 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 fresher in the minds of people there right and chile more recently also has bolstered its network and that's also in response to a couple of pretty decently large eruptions that got a lot of people's attention
1: Remarkable stuff. Dr. Seth Moran, the scientist in charge at the Cascades Volcano Observatory. Thanks so much for dropping by today. Uh, You're welcome. Great talking with you. I really do appreciate it. And welcome back to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction, a book about extinction. The climate scientist's warnings have come true. There is more carbon in our atmosphere, trapping heat and moisture than ever before in the 165,000-year history of the human race. We are on the verge of the first ice-free summer in the Arctic in three million years. And back then, the Earth was a very different place from the one currently cradling us. The consequences of a warming planet are appearing much faster than had been projected by climate scientists of just a decade ago. The most dire warnings, rising oceans, freak storms, and agricultural collapse— They're all taking place right now, and it's going to get worse. But now other voices have entered the fray. Those of geologists who study the longer term implications and histories of a planet undergoing rapid global warming. Specifically, they are focused on extinctions. The climate scientists, geologists, and those from related scientific disciplines need to continue talking to each other because at some point we may be able to see the critical moment. In which the current climate crosses from the realm of a global destabilizer to a global extinction event. We must wake up. It's hard to imagine life without Earth. We take the vast variety of life on this planet, and even our own existence, for granted. But numerous times in our planet's history, life as we know it has come close to it disappearing entirely. We call these events mass extinctions, and we even teach schoolchildren about those times of great death on our planet. For example, we know that long ago, on a much more unstable planet, the dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid striking the Earth. This leads many people to believe that as long as we don't see an asteroid hurtling toward the planet, all is well. But this is not rational thinking for several reasons. The asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs and started a major mass extinction is the only event having to do with outer space that we can trace with any certainty. And new science indicates that the asteroid impact itself wasn't what killed the dinosaurs. It was the global warming that followed it. New science has discovered a common theme in all of the extinctions in the past, and it's woven right into the global fabric of today as yet another mass extinction threatens our planet. That global consistent thread is global warming. We have had six extinctions in the billion year history of life on our planet. Each sharp spike in the chart below indicates one of these mass extinctions. And there's a chart on the page. Um, occurring about 450 million years ago, the Ordovician/Silurian mass extinction devastated marine life, which at the time dominated the planet. In a series of two extinctions, 60 and 70 percent of all life on the planet was taken, respectively. Then, fewer than 100 million years later, the planet was rocked again. The Devonian period was capped off by a 20 million-year death march. It killed off 70 percent of life on Earth. This included many coral reefs, which didn't return for another 100 million years. We know of the KT extinction, the Cretaceous Tertiary extinction, which occurred 65 million years ago, ending the reign of the dinosaurs. There was also an extinction event 200 million years ago, known as the Triassic Jurassic mass extinction. But none of these extinctions explains the huge spike shown in the center of the previous chart. That one happened 250 million years ago and it was the worst mass extinction of species event in the history of our planet. It was the extinction of all extinctions. Referred to as the Great Dying, the Permian mass extinction took out at least 95% of all life on the planet in fewer than 100,000 years, an instant in geological time. Professor Paul Wignall of the University of Leeds, and an expert on mass extinctions, told me that the Permian was the greatest crisis that life on Earth has ever suffered. Only in the past two decades has the cause of the Permian extinction been understood. It was speculated that an asteroid impact may have been the trigger, but more recent research by Professor Wignall, geologists, and other scientists around the world have revealed the true trigger came from deep within the Earth. The permanent mass extinction was initiated by a colossal flow of lava in an area of what is now Siberia. That was the trigger, but not the killer. The killer was under the water and under the ice, where trillions of tons of greenhouse gases, largely derived from carbon and frozen in the form of crystalline methane, lay in wait thus global warming is the force behind the death of nearly everything on the planet during the permian mass extinction that point is well illustrated you can again see the spikes of mass extinctions measured by the increase in global temperatures with the largest spike representing the permian mass extinction Wignall told me there've been a lot of disasters and crises in the geological past it's interesting to study them because they may have a comparison to today he added i think it is certainly extremely significant that a lot of the main crises of the past are associated with global warming with obvious implications for the present day the sixth mass extinction may even rival the speed and intensity of the great permian mass extinction but the sixth is not represented on either of the two previous charts that's because it's the one happening today right now all around us and then we go on to document how the burning of fossil fuels Is throwing an amount of carbon into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that's relatively similar to what happened with that giant volcanic eruption in Siberia 250 million years ago with the Permian mass extinction, and how it could be leading to a major extinction event. The book is The Last Hours of Humanity Warming the World to Extinction. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's up in the world today. On the line with us is Doug Christian. Hey, Doug, what's the latest news? Well,
4: there's a lot about impeachment going on these days. And, okay. uh Here in the White House, of course, the president is in a state of shock. Usually when he gets off his helicopter, he walks to the press, he spars, he uh, name calls, he does all sorts of things. This time he made a huge circle right around the press and actually kind of hid from them as he walked directly to uh, his onlookers over on the other side. And we in the press had to scurry on over to the other side.
1: He didn't go into the bushes where Sean Spicer used to hide out? (laughs) <laughs> exactly.
4: It was like that.
1: <laughs> and then he literally
4: would not get close to the press and then kind of waved at us as he went, walked into the executive mansion. And then he walked through the executive mansion and then down the corridor um, uh, next to the Rose Garden, the outdoor corridor, and we in the press were actually blocked from getting close to him. And he just walked right into the Oval Office to avoid speaking to us. And, of course, people here in the White House, many officials are, there. Totally shocked. They had no idea that Nancy Pelosi would follow through and do this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They thought that they, uh, they they were, their bet was that the Democrats were total wimps.
4: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And of course, yeah. Nancy Pelosi. I mean, I had spoken with several uh, Republican senators who, who went uh, back to the old talking points. Of course, they had, the White House sent those talking points inadvertently to uh, Democrats, misspelled Delensky's name, but uh, those talking points mentioned all sorts of you know the usual nonsense about impeachment, including that Democrats just hate uh, Trump. The thing I said to uh, Jim Inhofe is, I said, but Nancy Pelosi did not. want to go forward with impeachment for the longest time. It was only when this happened that she, enough was enough. Now, the thing is, is that today, 300 intelligence officers have written a statement, a letter, expressing their profound concern of Trump's actions and uh, they say most of them have eschewed politics throughout their careers and as a result we we haven't weighed in publicly but they said the revelations in recent days however demand a response specifically all of us recognize the imperative of formal impeachment proceedings to ascertain additional facts and weigh in the consequences of what we've learned and what may yet still emerge and of course what they already know is that there have this is not just one call but many calls that have actually been shifted over to what they call code-word-level secure server, and that's an additional level of security way beyond top secret. This is for such a security concern as, let's say, action against Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this is in direct violation of a 2009 executive order by President Obama saying that documents cannot be moved to secret locations to skirt scrutiny. So uh mm-hmm. Now, of course, this impeachment comes as the, uh, the Hill-Harris poll shows that support for impeachment inquiry has jumped up 12 points to 47 percent, uh, opposed to uh, impeachment down 42 percent. So actually more people are for impeachment right now than yeah. against it.
1: I'm thinking, Doug, that secret server that uh, Trump's people are using to hide his, uh, quote, politically sensitive... Uh, end quote, conversations with foreign leaders like Mr. Putin and presumably Mr. Erdogan and Duterte and Modi and whatnot, that that, that that secret server is going to be to Trump what the White House tapes were to Nixon. That's going to be the, the documentary evidence that brings him down. Is that, is that an opinion that is uh, widespread in Washington, D.C.?
4: Yes and no. The thing is, is that I talked to John Tester, who uh, is, a, is a very important measure because he is a uh, senator in a red state. A in Democratic Montana.
1: senator from Montana, yeah.
4: Exactly. And I asked him about uh, impeachment inquiry, and he said they must stay focused. And then you heard Nancy Pelosi say we must stay focused. There may be many other violations, but if, if the Democrats get distracted and say, yes, there was this, and there was this, and there was this, then um, what Tester was arguing to me is that this impeachment inquiry could get lost in confusion. So right. that's, even though there's a lot of stuff going on. It be simple and straightforward.
1: Um, Doug, do you know you know, the way that laws are voted on by senators is they can't pick and choose parts of the law that they like. They can't say, you know, uh, you know, I'll take this tax cut, but I don't want that tax cut. They just have to vote yes or no on the entire piece of legislation. Does it work that way with impeachment? If there's eight articles of impeachment, do they have to vote yes or no on all eight, or do they get to vote yes on one, no on two, yes on three? Do you know?
4: I don't know. I don't because know the those answer two to that. Different
1: systems, I guess, or structures would require two quite different strategies. And that might be what Tester was talking about. But it's fascinating stuff. Doug Christian with Talk Media News. Thank you, Doug. You bet. Great talking with you. And uh, thank you for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It does require all of us. And that includes you to get out there and get active. Guys, remember the days when you were always ready to go? Well, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up, bluechew.com. It's blue like the color. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredient as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach, and since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. If you could benefit from extra function and more confidence where it counts, Blue Chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Blue Chew is prescribed online, shipped straight to your door in a discreet package, no in-person doctor visits, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. Made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for our podcast listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code TOM. Uh, T-H-O-M, just pay $5 for shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, promo code Tom, T-H-O-M, to try it free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast.